Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and the final episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast for the year 2023. I want to thank each and every one of you for continuing to hang out with us for another year, and we have a nice exciting episode tonight we're going to revisit some of our uh, notable guests and some of our favorite podcasts of the year these aren't all our favorite podcasts but these are just a few that we can fit into an episode but to wrap this episode wrap this year up mr jeff cops had a jeff sir how are you doing tonight fella man i'm, I'm excited it, it's sad that 2023 is coming to an end but i'm excited for what's in store for 2024 at what's the scuttlebutt you know i have no way of proving it but I like to think that the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is the first World War II-based podcast to have ever recorded an episode live from a World War II reenactment. We are also the first World War II-based podcast to ever record live from a AC, an American Kennel Association dog show with our friends over at the Doberman booth with our friends uh, from Walking Point. And I will... I, I'm going to go out and say we are the first World War II-based po- podcast to record live from the cab of a 1943 Willys? Or is that a 43 Willys? 42 uh, Ford. Even better. 42 Ford. Yeah. Mike Blowski, friend of mine, who's on podcast twice in your early days, he had a Ford that was three on the tree. Believe it or not. And it was, he had it, took to reenactments quite a few years, but it was beat up and he finally sold it. But it was, it's the, Reenacting, you will come across a lot of Jeeps. A lot of guys have them. It was the only one I've ever seen that was three on the tree, and he researched it, and that was the original configuration for that series. It was a very limited edition, but he had one. Wow. And it's one thing to get modern-day cats, the younger kids, to put in a Jeep with the, the four-speed or the five-speed and have them try to shift it, but when it's a three on the tree, like, what the hell is this? Where's park neutral and reverse? No, it doesn't work that way, but yeah goes it's it's one of those things so uh congratulations on setting the bar high we are now broadcasting from a jeep maybe one day we can broadcast from the back of like a c47 or something that'd be badass yeah yeah i mean i think you know like i said we kind of expand our horizons of what's the scuttlebutt i mean i can see yeah maybe from the cockpit of a p51 or up in the nose of a b17 or i mean you know, we've, we've been going around so much, and, and it helps that we're not just podcasters. I mean, we're reenactors, and we do so much other things, you know, in the World War II community. So the opportunities that get thrown at us, man, it's, you know, the sky's the limit. And I think that's what makes our, our podcast, you know, not only unique, but kind of helps keep it that cutting edge where, yeah, we don't have a million-dollar Joe Rogan studio Um some of our stuff's a little grainy. Or, but if someone's you know, interested in donating us a twenty dollars studio, it'd <laughs> be great too. I mean, we'll take a two million, we'll take a fifty thousand, we'll take a two hundred dollars studio. Well, anything you want to help, just go ahead and email us at mail call at wtspworldwar2.com. But at that point, you and I first video we ever did together, we shot in front of a Japanese submarine that was captured during Pearl Harbor from the National Museum of the World War of the Pacific. So there's yeah. that. So yeah, yeah. We, we've, you know, I, we, you and I were talking before we went on the air, and it was interesting. I was watching a TikTok from a, um, a famous 
female rapper whose boyfriend's even more famous that she records all his videos, but she also does live streams. And she was like, for all the other live streamers out there, have you guys ever like done a two, three hour long live stream that was done? Have no idea what the hell you talked about. I'm like, yeah, every Monday at nine o'clock and four, five years of radio podcasting. Yeah. Chances are, our audience can come up and say, hey, remember episode one, blah, blah, blah. When you Not really. I was going back and cutting these clips. I'm like, wow, we had a lot of amazing guests on this year. And when you do this every week, sometimes, you know, the very next day, you don't even remember what you talked about, especially when you vlogged 170 up, oh, 171 episodes tonight. And so, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, that's an interesting question for you. Um, you've had a lot of experience doing video stuff, TV stuff, and now podcasting. You've been doing this for a few years now. Are there sometimes when you look back at it, you realize, well, I don't remember half the stuff we've done. How, is, how does it affect your memory or looking back on how many episodes we've done now? Yeah, that actually that actually happens a lot. And it's mostly it comes from uh, my students uh, at the high school. They'll apparently be scrolling through Jeff Copset on Google Images, and she's like, Mr. Copsetta, what is that? I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, you know, like shooting a flamethrower somewhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just see like a flame burst from the front of the Thompson or, you know, all this crazy stuff that we've done. I mean, dude, I could only, I, I couldn't tell you one thing from the first episode we did together at the rap party for Walking Point. I can, I my no most idea. embarrassing moment in our relationship. When I accused you of being a former Marine, because <laughs> you, I just met you. You were in Marine Corps uniform all weekend. You were there as the military advisor for Walking Point, and I just did the math. I knew you were a veteran, and I knew you were there, but I, you, you, we hadn't really talked too much off set. So I was like, "Oh damn, that 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 hurt." But it was a good time. Everybody had a good See, laugh. I didn't even remember it. that, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, every once in a while there's the one that sticks you a little bit that just makes you want to work a little harder for the next one. But, yeah. Um, before we kick off things, we are wrapping it up, and Christmas is right around the corner. You had a, a little interesting little uh, tidbit you wanted to present to our audience about the uh, – and we've done this a little bit differently the past few years. We've talked about when holidays roll around, how that holiday and the importance of that holiday affected those, whether it's front line or home front – during that era so you have something else you wanted to uh contribute tonight as far as christmas to holidays and the season around the era of world war ii yeah absolutely and you know christmas is such an important time uh for for everybody i think and and most especially for soldiers and, and when they're deployed overseas you know it, it kind of everything else kind of fizzles out and you just kind of come together um, no matter where you are, you know, some of the crudest Christmas trees have been put up all over the world on, on battlefronts, um, you know, all over. And so there is something special about Christmas. And, you know, of course, with World War II, uh, especially from the United States perspective, Christmas 1941, my goodness, how different that was, um, you know, because of that change and, and us being thrust into the war three weeks prior to that. So that must have been a very, very unique Christmas not only for those who were already, you know, not deployed, but of course stationed, um, you know, overseas somewhere. And then, of course, at the home front. So I thought, you know, let's take a look at what Christmas was like 
on the home front? You know, what what exactly was Christmas, and, and just some tidbits of information about Christmas at the home front. And and this was compiled by the National World War II Museum. You know, which they just do a fabulous job on so many things. So um, it says here that during World War II, Christmas trees were in short supply because of a lack of manpower to cut the trees down and a shortage of railroad space to ship the trees to the market. Americans rushed to buy American-made Visca artificial trees. So, you know, I, I, gosh, I didn't think about artificial trees going back that far, but it makes sense. And I, I kind of did a little more research on Visca, and it's like a, it's like an imitation straw. Okay, makes uh, sense. That now, they use. for you young kids, he means straws and hay, <laughs> the wheat, and not like the drinking straw. Oh, right, right, yeah. <laughs> and then there was another company. And I can't remember the name, but uh, there was another company that made toilet brushes that they joined the effort. Makes perfect stiff sense. Bristles yep. make, to make artificial Christmas trees. So, okay, so in 1941, a five-foot Christmas tree, now this is a real tree, could be purchased for how much do you think? 1941, coming off the Great Depression, uh, we're going to adjust a little bit for, we're going to de-adjust for inflation I'm going to say a steady conservative dollar 75. Pretty close, 75 cents. Wow. Bought you a five foot Christmas tree in 1941. 2023, it'll cost you about $97, and that's for not even a Douglas fir. Yeah, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're, they're ridiculous. <laughs> they're ridiculous now. Um, so, with the shortage of materials like aluminum and tin that were used to produce ornaments, that led many people to make their own ornaments at home. Um, magazines contained patterns for ornaments made out of non-priority war materials like paper, string, and natural objects, such as pine cones or nuts. So I thought that was interesting. What magazines are there out there, maybe at the, you know, on the shelves of an antique store somewhere, where you just take it home and you flip it open and there's patterns for homemade ornaments? And those magazines are going to be far more valuable because of the fact that you got to find one that someone didn't actually participate in the intended use of said magazine and cut it all up or at right. least pull out those right. pages. Yeah. Uh, so let's see the next one. Electric bubble lights were created during the 1940s and they still remain popular even today. I remember That's those. Um, <laughs> my grandparents, obviously we've talked about, it. they fought in the war. Um, and growing up in the 70s and 80s, not that far off from the 40s, and my my dad and my mom had gotten divorced at that point. My mom was not financially stable, and so all those quote-unquote old ornaments from the 50s and 60s that my grandparents replaced through the 70s and 80s got handed down to my mom. And so I remember they're like a little ceramic pot almost, if you think about it, and there's a light bulb in it. And it's just a real thin red, some are blue, some are green, uh, just glass, maybe about the circumference of an old school thermometer you would stick under your tongue. And there's a little point at the top, and they had red fluid in them, blue fluid, and green. And kind of like a lava lamp without the lava, um, that light bulb would heat up, and it would cause that water to boil just enough that there's a little bubbler coming from the bottom, and it'd go to the top. And I remember the big red bulbs that were... Um, colored and the paint would flake off and interestingly enough if you guys head over to the facebook page for the what's the scuttlebutt i shared an ad that 
fellow living historian, Ted, who's also been on the show, he shared an advertisement from 1951 boasting the fact that these new Christmas lights are come with non-flaking paint. And I remember the old lights, how that paint would chip off of them. And so you'd have this orange light or blue light or green light, and it was the paint was flaking off, so half of it was translucent. And, of course, if you had a real tree, you had to make sure those things were watered because those bulbs got so damn hot, they would catch your tree on fire, let alone burn somebody if you went and touched them. So I remember those bubblers. I remember a lot of those early stuff. I remember the early Christmas, like, Santa Claus, the Frosty the Snowman, all those things cut out that your parents would buy at the store and perforated cardboard. I can see all those decorations and a lot of stuff. Once again, my grandparents held over from the 40s and 50s and 60s. And so I remember a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, let's see, there's another one here that is still pretty popular as well. Uh, probably just done a little bit differently. But to give their Christmas tree a snow-covered effect. I'm so glad you brought this up. (laughs) I'm not going to step, but I'm going to let you say it. But I was thinking right when you started this, I'm like, if Tony Tony over at WLBN Radio has one hair on his back, he has this, despite the fact what it's made out of. Please inform our audience what artificial snow was made out of in 1943. Well, it says here they mixed a box of Lux soap powder. And two cups of water, and they brushed the concoction on the branches of the tree to give it the snow effect. So that's, you know, that's the homemade version. The retail version was made out of asbestos. <laughs> no oh, lie, yeah, yeah. The, the commercial grade artificial snow that you could buy to sprinkle around on your tree was asbestos flakes. It's good. It's good. And and when you get the bubble lights with the with the paint that doesn't flake, it's because they just added lead to it. <laughs> Yep. Have you heard the whole conspiracy theory about why they got they outlawed lead paint in the 80s, in the 70s? Because we all grew up in that era. It's all because they don't want kids biting on the paint. The paint would chip and they'd eat lead flakes. That's what we were told. The conspiracy nuts nowadays is, no, they the government didn't want us all making Faraday cages because if you had lead paint, no, they couldn't listen to you. And not only that, but truthfully, TV signals couldn't get in your house, neither could radio signals because you're basically building a Faraday cage around your, your house. And so that's the true reason why they got rid of lead paint so that they could still get TV signals and radio signals into your uh-huh. homes. Whether there's any truth to that, uh-huh. I don't know. It kind of makes sense, but you know that's the tinfoil hat version of why we don't have lead paint anymore. Right, right. This one I think I found especially interesting here. So fewer men at home resulted in fewer men available to dress up like Santa. So women served as substitute Santas at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York City and at other department stores throughout the United States. Now, there are photos available. You can you can look these up as women dressed as Santa. And I, I just, I mean, at first I couldn't believe it, and then I thought, well, okay, you know, I mean, that, that makes sense. Hey, if the Shakespearean um, actors could be men dressed up as women, then why can't women <laughs> dress up like Santa Claus during the war when there's no men around? So, well, I mean, and I think that's the first thing I thought of, like, oh, women dressed as, as Santa, like, that seems like a new age thing. Mm-hmm. But not really, right? And, you know, when you, in the necessity, time of, uh, of necessity, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, so, uh, this one I think will resonate with most people. I'll be home for Christmas and white Christmas were both written during the 1940s quickly gained popularity with the war weary, but optimistic population. Of course, those two big hits, uh, during the holidays was limited for most families due to the rationing of tires and gasoline. 
So Americans saved up their food ration stamps to provide extra food for a fine holiday meal. And lastly, many Americans, through their German-blown glass ornaments and exotic Japanese ornaments in the trash as soon as the war began, no surprise, Shortly after the war, Corning Glass Company in New York began mass-producing Christmas tree balls using machines designed to produce light bulbs. There you go. Corning, yeah, Corning could make more ornaments in a single minute than a German cottage glassblower could make in a whole day. Oh, absolutely. Mass production on high. Yeah. Yep, I, I could... thought those were kind of interesting things from the home front. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. It's like Christmas and the holiday season is the one time of the year that most of our non-World War II aficionado contemporaries will actually be, I don't want to say inundated, but have 1940s-themed stuff pumped into their lives because of the Christmas music. That's usually when most people hear music from that era, unless it's the Mariah Carey song on repeat. You know, it's interesting. When I moved to California in 2001... And I lived in Long Beach, and I was going to the malls. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas was huge. And so, and that it being obviously L.A. and Disney and all that stuff, when you went around to the malls in 2001, 2002, you didn't hear classical Christmas music. It was basically everywhere you went was Nightmare Before Christmas soundtrack, everywhere. That's the one thing I remember about when I lived in California. We want to remind everybody, um, sign up, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Probably in February, we're going to be giving away the second print from Valor Studios. Um, we will post up some full-colored pictures here over the holiday weekend. All you have to do is sign up for Patreon. You can be a dollar a month subscriber, or seven fifty a month, or three fifty a month. And uh, you'll be entered to win. We're going to draw the name for that print, and we're going to continue to do giveaways throughout the year. You know, we discussed it in the past, and it never occurred to me, and I don't think, why not? If you sign up for $7.50 a month plan after the second month, we offer you a free T-shirt. I'm going to extend that to a hat, too. So if you got T-shirts and you want the WTSP hat, when I reach out to you and I say, hey, you want what T-shirt do you want? If you want the hat, say, hey, I'd rather have this hat instead. We'll be more than happy to send you the hat. So if you are signed up for the $7.50 a month plan, um, we will happily send you a hat or the T-shirt of your choice after month number two. And if you guys haven't done so, please head over to YouTube.com, click on the YouTube link, find us, look for Digital 410 Media, or just type in WTSP World War II, and it'll come up in the search, like, and subscribe. Um, a little housekeeping, we're going to change things up coming up in 2024. We're going to focus more on production and um, presenting you more full episodes, and the only way we can truly do that is not to do them live. That way we can produce them, we can edit them, and we can put more effort and energy into bringing you guys full history. And so we're still going to air episodes every Monday, but we're not going to do them live so that we can put a little more production into them. We're going to try to build a full staff and really crank things up for 2024. And we're excited about that. But before we go down too far down the road, 2024, if you guys don't mind, we want to revisit some of our favorite moments of 2023. And I think we should go back all the way back to episode 141, aired live on February 9th, 2023, with Mr. Lance Faulkner. He is a living historian. But more importantly, if you're a living historian and you have aircraft dog tags, I would say all, I don't know, there's about a 97.9% chance, at least if you did Army, 
you got them from World War II dog tags. And so we were thrilled to have Mr. Faulkner on, and we're going to revisit a little bit of his episode, and we will discuss that. So here is episode 141, back from February 9th, 2023. Um, I was up here visiting my in-laws about 15, 16 years ago, and um, it's a long drive from Phoenix, Arizona to the Portland area. And my wife and I got talking, and she goes, well, you should make dog tags. And she was indicating I should make dog tags for dogs. <laughs> uh, I did a bit of research while I was up here and found out dog tags for dogs was a really competitive area, but what about dog tags for people? And so at the end of that vacation and visiting the in-laws, I had already sourced a set of dog tags, set, you know, dog tags, chains, um, found a machine in Phoenix. And so in, from about two weeks from the moment she said, hey, do this, you should do this, I was doing it. <laughs> and I was in internet marketing at the time. So there you go. I had a website up and running in about about two days. And within the first month, I sold my first, first set. And uh, it's paid for a lot of hobby stuff since. I I don't want to do this, but I feel we need to. <laughs> Can we just settle once and for all? Can you squash the the horrible um, lore the, the, the about tooth. the notch? Can we can we just bury the notch nonsense now? Uh, Let's just get it yeah, out of the way. Uh, so the the main machine that makes dog tags is an addressograph. And the addressograph was the was a company that made machines that did that stampings and and before you had mimeographs and and stuff like that, um, you know, you're, they would make a machine that would stamp your address and your electric company would send you your bill you, and they would use that for your address. And so the medical corps wanted to stamp um, forms very quickly with the soldier's information, which is why those are embossed. It goes down. And to do that, they had what's called an addressograph model 70, which is a hand stamper. And it looks like those um, embossing label things you were had when you were a kid, but it's about the size of a 45. Okay. And your dog tag fits in there. And to keep the dog tag from moving side to side, it had a notch. Yeah. And that notch keeps it from moving side to side. Because as one can imagine, when you're stamping aluminum it may have a tendency to jostle a bit yeah. which would not so. be uh, very good to look at in uh, singular so for all those people for some reason I think it probably came out around Vietnam movies or whatever you know how they get the notch and the dog okay if if in fact that was what they're going to do with it they wouldn't need the notch the notch has no <laughs> would not help any way shape and form of placing the dog tag in one's teeth etc so I remember I, I first heard that when I was probably in elementary school. And for those of you who don't know, because I, I was trying to be delicate about it, but for those of you who don't know what I was talking about, there's this urban legend, and as I insinuated, I think it started around Vietnam. For whatever reason, someone started the rumor that the reason you had two dog tags and they had the notch in it is they would take one to, to send back and then they would take the other one, put it in someone's mouth, clamp their jaw down it, and then kick them in the bottom jaw to make the dog tag stick in between their teeth so they wouldn't lose it when they were burying the body or transporting the body. And so I just wanted to put that to rest because I got so tired of hearing that. I, and I actually heard people mention, like, talking to civilians, oh, is that the notch for the teeth? No, no, no it's not. It's, it's where they 
held the dog tag sturdy, as you heard him say, because once again, we're talking, it's, 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 it's like a, I want to say like a giant typewriter, but I realize probably half of our audience has never used a typewriter before, so they don't even, they don't even get that reference. But yeah, it's, it was just a, a form of necessity to hold the template and in, in to spot. But that's a, a very good episode. And I was thinking, Jeff, obviously we can order dog tags in the future. 20 years from now, you can just get them off some website and they're stamped out probably in China or some some place real quick. We need guys like Lance Faulkner in our life. We need guys who can tell you the history, can tell you what machine, what type stamp, what what gauge metal. We need that. We need that part of World War II history to stay alive. And so, hopefully, there's someone in Lance Faulkner's universe that he can pass that information on to. Maybe he's got a young, um, enterprising, thirsty intern who's sucking up the knowledge that he has. So as he gets older and moves on, someone else will carry that torch of wisdom and be able to show up at living history events and things like that and and be able to stamp those out in the parking lot because that that's all you know we talk about all the time whether it's in one helmets or canteens it's the little things like that that we talk about too everybody in this hobby we all have that one little weird thing that we love and for lance faulkner it's dog tags and everything about the machines and he's found a way to whether it's a full-blown enterprise which i think it is or it's just a way to supplement his hobby i don't know i think it's a full-blown career for him at this point but god love him man yeah yeah i didn't know there was that much to know about dog tags honestly <laughs> till we had him on it was great yep and uh i mean he could tell oh no that machine came out in this year i oh, know jeff i think you guys have this machine because <laughs> you were talking to him about the machine that you guys have and how your son would every once in a while stamp out some dog tags for the people yeah. who were coming to the museum. And he said, no, I think you guys have this machine and this and that. So yeah, it's very, yeah. very cool. Yeah. We're going to shoot on that next to episode 142. No, 143. I actually have 141, but that was the episode Lance was on. Mr. George Luz Jr. If you don't know, George Luz Sr. was a member of uh, Easy Company, 101st Airborne, 506. And had a prominent role of his life portrayed in the miniseries Band of Brothers. And we had George Luz on here. And uh, we are kind of talking with Henry. And I brought the fact that George and Henry kind of share the same same role in modern day life. And that is, you know, keeping the memory of their father alive. And, and sharing that same sort of unique position in life. And here's George Luz and Henry talking about um, Henry's father the things left behind and decisions that one has to make when it comes to family artifacts. Well, yeah. So my dad, he, uh, he shared a lot of stuff with me. I really wish I would have had the technology. You know, you're so blessed that, you know, you've got so much of your dad's writings and, yeah. uh, you know, wrote a book and the whole Bible story, man, that's just blows me away you and henry share a similar position in modern day contemporary society and that is you know your father's legacy and not only in the world of world war ii but in these particular many series what would you do if you're in that position where there was a george luz bible that you know congress you know library of congress said hey uh why don't you ship that bad boy out here would you quickly do it or would you hold on to it for a while uh, yeah that's a tough one uh, you know i don't know uh whew. Because you know that that's got that's got your dad's hands on it, and um, you know when I look at I look at everything around that we have from my dad, um, you know okay that that's got my dad's hands on it. 
And that is such a significant thing because, you know, I was, I was looking back at uh, the Pacific because I had watched it. And I got a longer story about watching the series, how cool it was. But, you know, recently going over some of the stuff, listening to your mom, listening to your dad. <laughs> you know, when you, when you put the puzzle together and you look at that and, you know, number one, it's a Bible. Number one, it was in his hands. It was in the most difficult spot he was ever in. And he had the wherewithal to just put those little blurbs in there, those little words. And then he, you know, went back home and then expanded on it. So, man, I, I'll tell you what, I'm glad you've got to make that decision because I don't know what in the world you would do on that one. And that was episode 144. And George also talked about how cool it was, you know, for us to listen to him talking about growing up, going to these reunions and hanging out with Shifty Powers kids and Tom Malarkey's kids and just growing up around, not only around them, but their children and how even as their parents have passed on, the children of Easy Company have kind of held this tight community and they still communicate, you know, and reach out and maintain that, that family, if you will. And so that was another great episode. Yeah, I was I was sorry that I missed that one. I forget why, but yeah, that was definitely one I I really wish I could have made because of course George Ludd such a beloved character, and it was an interesting time for Henry too. With you know, I I I think that was the beginning of the uh, the National Archives reaching out, yep. correct about potentially you know having the Bible and Henry having to make that decision: Do I give it to him? Do I keep it in the family? You know, so, and I, I don't know, I never did hear what he I finally don't, did. I don't think there was ever a final, yeah, final, I think it was still up in the air. I, I don't want to, I don't know, I don't know if he's going to, you know, first refusal when he finally makes that decision or, or what he's going to do. I, I'm not quite sure, but speaking of Band of Brothers, I'm looking at you in that shirt. And obviously, is that a third armor or a second armor patch on your sleeve? It's a little third. blurry. <laughs> with your five o'clock shadow and the captain's bar on there and the way you're, you're kind of doing that Kubrick stare up. You, you got a, you got a Nixon air going to you. You look like Nixon. You just need like a, a bottle of VAT 69 in front of you. Or, or was it VAT 67? <laughs> you, you do. Yeah. Or maybe a bacon sandwich. Yeah. You know? Bacon sandwich. Well, no, he never got the bacon sandwich. He's still, never he's still that. looking for the bacon sandwich, <laughs> but yeah, with your, with your screen, the way it is, you, you got a Nixon vibe going going for you yeah i'll take it <laughs> and just a heads up you know we're talking about wtsp world war ii.com earlier if you guys go there you're new to our podcast you want to hear some of these episodes click on the magnifying glass at the top and just type in ep 144 and it'll pull up george allows episode or type in ep you know one of the other episodes and you can go back and listen and out of all the podcasts on the digital 410 network what's the scuttlebutt is probably close to being the f most full um, available. Obviously, you have storage space concerns, and so I, with my what you know, what's in your head and my fail to fail, I've gone back and deleted some of the old ones and make them available still through redeployment episodes. But I try to keep as many of the what's the scuttlebutts in there, so you guys can go back and listen to. And the ones I have removed, I will replay later on as part of a best of episode. But you know, we try to make as many of the old episodes still available to you, despite storage space limits on our website because you know that's just the way technology works and so that was episode 144 uh 144 with george lush jr 
We're going to go to episode 146. March 21st, Saul David was on. Uh, this was an episode Jeff wasn't available on because this is one of the few episodes we actually recorded in the middle of the day in order to get to get Saul on. And you're going to hear a significant difference in the quality of my recording because I actually recorded this at work in an empty office. And so I don't have all the sound deadening and the echo deadening, but it's still a great episode. Here is episode 121, Mr. Saul David. Well, that's what I was kind of wondering. It'd be interesting to hear the names that maybe armchair quarterbacks now could have said, well, this person was far more suitable to serve that role. Has any name throughout history been kind of put into that ring of, oh, if so-and-so would have served instead of Churchill, the outcome would have been maybe expedited? Well, you could possibly go back to some of the other major crises of, of, of uh, you know, existential crises of, of Britain's history to, you know, without getting too esoteric about it. But I've written about all of these conflicts, Don, so I'll just reel off a couple. Um, the War of the Spanish Succession, which is the war in which we, one of our greatest generals and military commanders, um, uh, the Duke of Marlborough, fought a succession of astonishing victories against the French. And the context, of course, is that the Fra French at that time were utterly dominant as, as a continental military power. And it was looking like they were going to dominate the continent, even though we had a relatively powerful navy. It wasn't anything like as powerful as it became. Uh, and there was a real danger that if France dominates the continent, uh, Britain, you know, gets snuffed out really as a as a growing power uh, and what of course becomes by the beginning of the 19th century the most dominant maritime power in the world and retains that position of course until it's it's taken over by the US in the in the 20th century. One of the cool things about having someone like Saul David on the show who has published so many books on so many different aspects of World War II, a lot of times when you have someone on who specializes in a, a particular campaign, you got to have your questions revolve around that area. With Saul, you can just, anything that comes off the top of your head, you can just throw the question out, and chances are he's published something based on whatever it is. And in that episode, I mean, we cover a lot of ground. Because, you know, we went from talking about Churchill to that follow-up question of, you know, looking at it now, was there somebody, as we we're talking about, who possibly could have filled that role and maybe done it worse or better? And that is a very, it was a very interesting episode and it's another great one to go back to and, and listen. And if you guys missed that episode, please go back and check out episode 146. But uh, very, very interesting um, author and very interesting guest. And we were very lucky to have him on. But that was just a, another another great show. Yeah, another great one that I missed, too. And I remember that one because of the timing. Yeah, the recording time for me and the time difference for him, of course. You know, I'm glad you guys could make that work. But, yeah, that's... Uh, he's he's quite a character. We were definitely lucky to to have him in the uh, in our bank there of of episodes. This next uh, next guest coming from episode one hundred and fifty still holds the record for the most appearances on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Back on April twenty seventh, this was his fifth appearance, and he was talking about his his recent trip to the Pacific and going to Guam. And um, flying over Wake Island and going to um, Oziwa, wasn't it? And um, yeah, here we go, episode 150, Mr. Jared Frederick. There's so many World War II sites on Guam. Um, it's also the site of our nation's westernmost national park, uh, Warren mm. the Pacific's uh, National Park. 
Uh, and uh, and so that that for me as a as a former park ranger, that was a very interesting experience because it felt like I was visiting a national park in a foreign country uh, almost. And there's uh, just a lot of fascinating sites uh, along the two major landing beaches. You can go up in the trails and find uh, Japanese concrete bunkers and various emplacements. They have a really nice museum there. Uh, of course, the naval base there is huge uh, to this very day, and it's all built on the infrastructure of what was put there during World War II. Uh, that was one of the, the largest supply depots on the planet, uh, you know, comparable to a massive Amazon warehouse, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that was that was the... For the last year of the war, that was the major jumping off point <clears throat> as far as logistics go. Uh, and so it was incredible to see all this history, but also to see the very active legacy of it still being used today. And what one of our tour guides called, I, I thought, which was very clever, uh, he called it the Island Curtain. One of the things that brought to my attention, it never even occurred to me that out of that episode is that how quickly we, meaning American citizens, may and most likely will lose access to some of those grounds, uh, particularly what was Iwo Jima. I think he was basically saying like, yeah, they let us in there like once every three years on an anniversary, but chances are after the, the last few veterans pass away, they'll probably just end that. And now, you know, we see what's going on with the rising tensions in the, the Pacific again. We know that uh, Peleliu now is being kind of rebuilt to support military movements now and how a lot of this stuff we may not have access to in the, in the near future. And all more reason that if you guys have on your bucket list to fly down and see some of these, these battlefields in the Pacific on some of these islands it would probably behoove you to start scheduling those sooner than later. Yeah, that that's exactly what I remember standing out the most. I mean, I've met several people who have, you know, toured Iwo Jima for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, it's cool to hear his story. But, yeah, when he mentioned that, he said, you know, I remember him saying, like, you, you may want to book it pretty soon because, yeah, it, I mean, and, you know, who knows? Hopefully that may just be an assumption. I, I don't know. But if that comes to fruition, man, what a shame that would be um, to, to have something like that go away. And I'm sure there are, you know, every historian and author, I'm, I'm sure, is, is privy to that information. And I'm hoping compiling all that they can, um, you know, to preserve, you know, as much as we can. And potentially release new uh, books about the subject uh, or things that have been overlooked for the last 80 years. But yeah, when, when Jared said that it was a little bit unnerving, I guess, to, to think that these things just aren't always going to be there. Yeah. Cause I think we take for granted, you know, most of the battlefields are in Europe, you know, most of them are in allied countries or Axis countries who now have a population to, want to share the mistakes that the previous generations made to prevent them from happening, who kind of puts aside the shame that may have been involved in some of the actions. But then you have countries 
who kind of maybe want to forget. I'm not saying this is what Japan's wanting to do, but, you know, they don't exactly come out smelling like roses and some of this stuff, and maybe they just want to, hey, we'll honor the battlefield, let the vets come, but once that generation's gone, let's, maybe they want to move past it a little bit. I don't know. It just, it, I guess it's weird to us to think that there might be an entrance gate on some of these places that are just locked up and the lights are proverbially turned off. And it's weird yeah. to think that that is a very, another example, you know, I was just kind of talking about how they're doing, they're reforming uh, form, some of these island atoll runways and all that for military actions. And a lot of us as history lovers, we can't fathom that. But Jared also reminded us, I think, on his fourth time on that, Hey, during World War II, uh, the Army wanted to knock down some of that pesky historical stuff in Gettysburg to outfit some soldiers because they didn't care about history. They're worried about here and now. They, that's perfectly good land we could do some training on. And luckily, the Park Service stepped in and said, uh, no, <laughs> we'll find some other land for you to park some soldiers on. We'll leave Gettysburg alone. It's not, unca- it's not unheard of, you know. The military needs of the now sometimes outweigh that of the past. And depending on which government you're talking about, um, and what history you're talking about, they may be quicker to say, yeah, let's just uh, knock down some of those old buildings and break up some 80-year-old concrete and let's lay some new rebar and make this stuff usable. Yeah. Yeah, crazy to think about. We're going to head on up to May of 24, episode 153. Luke Schultzel, he uh, has been on the show, I think, once or twice before. He did War Pigs, and on that particular episode, he came on to promote his new project, uh, Come Out Fighting, which also features Dolph London, who was also in War Pigs. And so here's um, Luke giving us a little quick rundown on working with Dolph London again. You know, getting to work with some of those heavy hitters. um, And, you know, Dolph, I don't know, you know, some people maybe have heard the news. He's been battling uh, cancer for the last several years. He, you know, with, with war pigs also oh long ago, you know, he agreed to do it and he kind of was the first name cast to kind of say yes. And he set the whole, uh, ball in motion to get other people, you know, get the financing involved sure. to get other people to say yes. So, I mean, what an amazing, you know, outstanding man. And what's fun about Dolph is, you know, obviously he's a big action star. Um, and in this one, he, you know, obviously we, we utilize him a little bit differently, but he, we love developing characters, and so it's it, it's been a lot of fun getting to work with Dolph Lundgren to kind of like really hone in a character that he, he wants to play and then just kind of adapt him into a film. You know, when I started this podcast back in 2018, my goal was to interview vets, which sadly there was fewer and fewer to, to uh, interview, and authors. But it never occurred to me that we would have a number of filmmakers and actors and producers on this podcast. I mean, Luke's been on twice. Obviously, R.J. Nevin's been on a handful of times from Walking Point. Um, coming up here in a few, actually, um, very next clip, Scott Gibson was on the show. We had Freddie Joe Farnsworth on the show. And so I never really foreseen that part of my podcasting world. And obviously all the insight that Henry's brought onto the show about the production of the Pacific. And so that was that's one of the things that, looking back at our podcast that I never really seen coming. That's not really when you think about doing a world war two podcast, at least I never really thought of all the celebrity stuff we'd have involved. Yeah. It's an important element because, you know, we talk movies so much and 
um, because it's it's an important vehicle to keep history alive, and so it only makes sense. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see you know kind of where that goes because all of the guys that we've had on, you know, they've got friends and they've got connections, and there'll be new stuff coming out. Right? We're we're all everybody's going crazy for Masters of the Air right now. You know, who knows? A year from now, we may have somebody that had something to do with that. Um, or, you know, we'll see what, what else comes down the line. So yeah, it's, it's, it's impressed me, man. I mean, I look back like, wow, I, who would have thought, I mean, my son watches band of brothers, like continuously, it's just on in his room. Right. I just, I hear it going all the time. And, and, and when I see, you know, Farnsworth coming out on, on the horse, you know, fat boy, yeah, I just like, wow, I, I, it was cool to have that conversation with him. And I want to say we've had him on more than once, right? I've had him on or, What's the Scuttlebutt. We had him on the What's in Your Head podcast. I'm not sure if he came on the What's the Scuttlebutt twice. I know, obviously, he was here once. I had him on What's in Your Head once. Because um, we obviously. Just, yeah, maybe just the once. But I've had several, I guess, several conversations with him just since then about different things and in the film industry and um, you know, it's just, it's neat. And then, you know, you, you put in the Pacific and you, and you watch our friend Scott Gibson, who's just been such a great part of the show, such a huge supporter. I mean, you know, when he was in Hawaii here a couple of weeks ago, I talked to him so much leading up to the, to the trip. And while he was there, talked to him several times when he was hanging out with some of the other Pacific actors, right. The guys that played JP Morgan. And of course the guy that played, uh, Bassalone and, and runner and, um Hoosier you know those all those actors were there and to to even have the opportunity for me to get a message to one of those other guys that he did for me was was really special so yeah um what's the scuttlebutt is definitely um opened so many opportunities for for both of us I don't think we saw coming you know a couple years ago and speaking of Scott Gibson he gave us kind of a what's the scuttlebutt exclusive we learned on his interview about the original actor that was cast to play John Bazalone and how he didn't make past work day number one. The actor who was supposed to play John Bazalone was uh, fired on, on, on his first day of boot camp. You know, they just made a choice, brought, just didn't work out. So the guy hadn't even been on screen yet and he got fired. And these things happen that, you know, um, obviously not a lot of people know about, but we all felt like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. If this can happen. So you just wanted to get on screen as quickly as possible on camera and, uh, and you're done. Um, Let's make it more expensive for them to fire me. <laughs> yeah. tape. We don't want to do reshoots. They still had, they still had to pay them. Um, but you know, it subsequently over the years, it's just become bigger and bigger. Uh, more people interested, more fans, younger fans. As a result, you are, it's, it's unlike anything else in terms of being a celebrity is the fact that, you are representing, you know, someone who fought in in the Pacific and, and European, and it, it's just it's so incredibly humbling. You know, that'd be a, an interesting question. I would love to have if we were ever so fortunate to have any cast member of Masters of the Air on, and that is, and Scott goes on to talk about it more. When they were filming Band of Brothers, they had no real idea of the impact on co- pop culture and historical culture that those actors who were portraying those men, what sort of impact they would have on us, your son, and how they will forever be known as Nixon, Malarkey, Dick Winters, 
Akak Haldane. And obviously Scott and the guys, they saw what happened with the cast of the band of band of brothers and how they are now forever kind of known for the people they played, even though so many of them have gone on to do so many other projects, but they will always be the guy from band of brothers. And he goes on, Scott goes on to talk about how the importance and the impact on his life, even after that series is done and been aired, how he's now taken this role in the world war II community forever kind of portraying, the modern day interpretation of who Ak Ak Haldine is, it would be interesting to see if the the guys, particularly the ones who don't already have a name for themselves, I know they kind of broke the mold a little bit with Masters of the Air that some of the key characters already have a, a career behind them, whereas in the past they kind of went with more quote unquote no names. But it would be interesting to talk to those guys and see if they if any of that went into their mind going into Masters of Air like Chances are, if we do this right, and history follows what we've seen laid out from Band of Brothers in the Pacific, I'm forever going to be associated with this gentleman, his family, and his memory, and his contribution to the war effort. I better fucking do this right. Yeah, no, Scott talks about that a lot. And um, and like you said, they at least the guys in the Pacific had an understanding whereas the guys from Panda Brother, I mean, who knew if that was even going to flop, right? I mean, this isn't saving private Ryan. We don't want this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause it was, it was so different. And I, I, and we've talked about this probably maybe too many times with, with masters of the air. And I still have this, I'm cautiously optimistic about it uh, because the pressure is really on. And, you know, like you said, when you put Austin Butler, when you put Elvis in the cockpit of a B-17, what effect is that going to have on people? And, you know, um, you're right. Some of those guys from, from Band of Brothers, I don't know if you ever saw them do an acting job again. Um, some of them probably felt like, hey, I'm probably never going to top this. I'm going to go back and get a real job because, you know, sometimes that can, you know, um, be detrimental for your career. Typecast. Um I remember I read a story about how John Wayne turned down being Marshall Dillon. Um, and one of the things, cause he had the foresight, he didn't, he didn't, he felt that that was going to be so successful, which Gunsmoke became very, a very successful TV show. He didn't want to be limited to just one role. Now the guy that plays Marshall Dillon, that's all he's ever been known for. And the show ran for you know decades. So that's all he ever needed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, how masters of the air does number one. Um, and, and number two, yeah, if we can get any kind of Intel once this thing comes out, like you said, from anybody that was on set, um, just to see what, what their mindset was, uh, you know, going in to, to a project like that, to follow up, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you follow band of brothers in the Pacific <laughs> that had to be going through their head as a fan, as a viewer, I want to kind of give our audience a piece of advice, something that I picked up years ago, probably in high school or, or shortly after. I don't allow myself to buy into the hype. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be a great show, but what I mean by that is growing up in Columbus, Ohio, we had Cedar Point and Kings Island, 
two huge amusement parks. Cedar Point's been known for, for history of being one of the best top amusement parks. But living smack dab in between these two amusement parks, every three or four years, they would start, oh, we'll have the new Manus ride or this ride, yada, yada. And everybody, oh, the Manus, blah, blah, blah. And they would build it up, build it up, and you stand in line, you're nervous, you're scared. And you get on it, like, how's the ride? Eh, not what I thought it was, but it was pretty good because you're buying the hype. You're buying in the hype, you're buying in the hype, you're buying the hype, all this. And, and you see this, like, I don't know, for those of you who play video games, they just announced that Grand Theft Auto 6 is going to be coming out in 2025, and there's already people, like, pulling apart trailers and, and dedicating a life to these websites. It's like, you're going to spend the next two years picking through every little thing you can about Grand Theft Auto 6, or people spent the last three years digging through everything they could on Masters of the Air. You're going to get yourself so invested in these projects that how can they possibly stand up to the hype that you built around them? Yes, Jeff and I are excited. I don't know about Jeff, but I'm not digging through archives and websites trying to find everything else I can about the show. I will ingest the show. I will see how I feel about it, and then I will go back based on how I feel about it and spend my time. Because well, I'm not a big fan of spoilers. I've seen people do this all the time, like with when you know all Yellowstone's out. I'm big fan of Yellowstone. I want to see what's going to happen next season. Why? Because when next season comes out, you're going to know what's happened. I don't. I don't get the people who spend time looking for spoilers. And so to all that, I say all that to say this: if you want to enjoy these series and these shows and these movies for what they are. Ingest them as they come along. Don't overhype them, and you you probably be less likely to be disappointed. Because then you don't have to say, "Well, it was good, but not as good as I was ex- hoping it would be." You know, have a decent bar of anticipation, and then that'll allow you to actually be impressed by something instead of being let down by it. Yeah, it's kind of an old army mindset too. You just prepare for the worst, and anything less is that much better. Um, and I guess for me, because the air war is just kind of the, you know, my biggest passion in, in the second world war. Right. I mean, it's just growing up around going air shows to go to see B-17s, watching the Memphis bell, you know, umpteen times getting to meet Captain Morgan, that that's just, that never left me. And I've expanded a lot of my interests, of course, but the air war, the eighth air force, the hundredth bomb group, B-17s. And pinks and greens and silver wings, man, like all it just doesn't get any better than that. So I guess that's why I'm kind of I don't I don't want to know too much. I don't like because you know, like I said, I don't I don't I don't want to know yet. I've read the book. I'm curious, you know, and I read the book long before um, it was even going to be called Masters of the Air. Initially, it was the Mighty Eight, and that book came as like a recommendation to read Gerald Astor's The Mighty Eight. I read the Mighty Eighth first, and then I read Masters of the Air, and then I heard the series got changed to Masters of the Air, which I thought was a crummy title initially. I thought, man, Matt, like the Mighty Eighth, that's perfect. But then I read somewhere, too, that maybe they thought it would be confusing that it was based off of the Mighty Eighth book and not Masters of the Air, because it truly is based off of the characters that they focus on in Masters of the Air. So that makes sense. Um, it would be like calling Band of Brothers something different. It's based on Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers. You know, so to call it anything else would be silly. And I, I learned that later on. But well, I think uh, also what we discovered by watching the original trailer by calling it Masters of the Air, you can incorporate other wings of the Air Corps into it, and not just the bomb group. Right. Right. 
excited nonetheless, for sure. Next episode, episode 160, going all the way back to August. This guest was fantastic. He, he lives the life. He's a train conductor by trade. But I could, someone needs to get a camera and do a YouTube video on his house. I want to see his house. Apparently, it's all decked out in 1940s theme. He probably is the guy with the asbestos fake snow around his tree right now. He runs this fantastic website. You guys, if you haven't checked it out, shame on you. Um, he's out of Montana. It's called WLVN 1940s Radio. Go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the menu drop down, and we have a, a bar. Take you right to his website. And what separates him? Tell you what, let's play the clip and then we'll we'll talk more about it because it, it's a very cool project and it's something that's just it's taking technology and using it for the right things. But I think it's very important because that is exactly what separates you from just listening to you know, a Spotify playlist or a Pandora where you're going to hear the same 38 songs. Yeah. And that, that took me about two years to get all of the, uh, the, the music together. I've got about, I've got over 25,000 files of music and radio shows, commercials, news. Um, and I'm collecting even more. I've, I've found people that have, uh, news stories from, um, from that time that I've never found. And so, you know, you pay a little bit of money and you, you get those files and I'm able to put them onto my radio station, uh, news, uh, events that, uh, people probably hadn't even heard of. And it's not even war stuff. It could be just regular news events, but that's what immerses more into, um, the 1940s lifestyle. Cause not all, not always did you have war news. You know, you had news about the economy, you had news about, uh, things that were going on around the world other than the war. And so if you go to his website right now, it's streaming live. You can listen to the background at work. You can listen to the background at your home. And right now, it's got some Christmas-themed stuff. He takes those files that he just talked about, and he programs it just like a modern-day radio station. Don't want to spoil it for you all, but when you walk into a modern-day radio station, I know I worked in one for six years. It's a computer with a playlist with commercials embedded into it. That's why when you call the DJ and ask for a song, they never play it because it's already pre-programmed by the program director, they do the same thing. The only difference is instead of playing modern music and modern news stories, he has music, news stories, sports events. I think one day he played an entire game from the Red Sox in 1943s. It's all on there. It streams in real time. And the cool thing is, yes, like some radio stations, you'll hear a song every once in a while, but radio back then was not like it is nowadays where it's, repetition we're gonna you know hit you with the same song over and over again to, to make you like it it was here's what's out there here's what people like and there's been so many songs i've heard on his station because i'll play it at work in my headphones while i'm doing it stuff there's songs i've never heard of before i'm like wow that's great or i've heard songs i had to reach out to him i've talked about before there was just a little tag in a song that i recognized from Beastie Boys song off their album Paul's Boutique that they had mixed into one of their songs. He went back and found it. He looked at his playlist like, oh, that's so-and-so from 1939. It's like, oh, that's where Beastie Boys got it. And so I even found cool things like that on there. And so go to our website, click on it. And Jeff and I have talked about this before. We all know, if you're a living historian or World War II actor, we've all been to the events where somebody had the old broken Bakelite radio or an old wood box radio and they got the Bluetooth speaker in it and they're streaming Spotify or Pandora, listening to World War II radio, which is fine until that 
QuickBooks commercial comes on during tax season, which completely bumps you. And so if you're streaming WLVN 1940s radio from your phone hidden in your knapsack into the Bluetooth speaker hidden in that radio, the only modern-day commercial that'll come on is one commercial like every two hours promoting his radio station. And even then, with the exception of the word .com, it doesn't really bump you. And so it's like the perfect thing to add to your ambiance on your living history event. And one of the things we're going to try to do next year for VKE, and I reached out to him this year and he was going to do it, but he was out of town and I kind of got a hold of him last minute. We're going to produce news reports based on the event we're putting on. So next year when we liberate the train in France from the Nazis who were taking over the Von Kessinger Express, we're going to have him play news stories about that event so that when the audience is walking through our camp after the train ride, those with a delicate ear who's paying attention, there'll be a news report playing about the event that they just experienced in real life. Like, what? Train? What? I just, oh, wow. And so it kind of immersed them. And that's something, you know, you can reach out to Tony and if you guys are putting on events somewhere, he'll be more than happy to create some commercials to talk or news stories to talk about your event. He wants to be part of that living history immersion. And so where else can he get that? He's a super great guy, fantastic website. Check it out. And Jeff was one of the guys who brought his attention to me. Yeah. You know, he, it's kind of like he was the missing link for, for reenacting. I mean, you know, I, I've listened to uh, the 40s, you know, 40s Junction on, on Sirius XM Radio for, for years. And it, back when it was actually it, Channel 40, then they bumped it to like 385. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was 40s on four, and then it went to 73, and it, it's moved around so many times. But yeah, it, um, and like I said, it's not that it's bad, but there there really is no commercials there's certainly no baseball games i mean yeah i was working on the jeep here on a saturday and i caught a yankees cardinals game or something you know the whole game um so yeah what tony's really done is just taking it to a next level he's given reenactors exactly what we want and not just the music but the advertisements i remember one about philadelphia cream cheese and it only cost one ration coin for two 3.5 ounce tubs of philadelphia cream cheese and you hear a lot of stuff, you know, just radio shows. I've caught the Lone Ranger on there before and the the different comedy shows. So you learn a lot more um, about the time, about the era, uh, just even just getting outside of the music itself. Right. I mean, you know, yeah, you go to an air show, you go to a living history event, you know, and it's the Andrew sisters and it's Bing Crosby. And that's great, you know, um, or Glenn Miller. And that's, that's great. But, He's got everything, and like you said, it's in chronological order. So yep. it's just you get you hop on WLVN 1940s radio right now. It's December of '43. You're not going to hear 1945 stuff until the year 2025. It's incredible what he has done. He's just it's he's done it's marvelous what he's what he's accomplished. And with the exception of an XM radio station, when you turn on that station. And Jeff turns on that station, and I turn on that station. We are all listening to the exact same thing, the exact same time, give or take three or five seconds for buffering. When I turn on a Spotify playlist and Jeff turns it on, it's not live. It's just random stuff with some ads. So 
you're literally sharing that experience with his entire audience. And it's it's wicked cool. And one of the things I heard one time I thought was cool, it was, I don't want to say it was a commercial. It was almost like a short infomercial. It was about, I think, I want to say it was talking to parents about how they can enlist their children or to kids who just recently graduated high school, how they can enlist in the, the Civilians Conservation Corps. And how cool is that? That was very cool to hear. I'm like, get your parents' permission and come on down and sign up for the Civilian Conservation Corps. And that's that's something, you know, we've touched briefly on the show before, but that's not something you hear a lot unless you go searching for it. I want to f- learn more about the, you know, the, the Civilian Concentration Corps. Conservation Corps and and things they're doing, so you can learn and discover a lot of very cool things over at WLVN 1940s Radio. We got two more to go. I'm going to wrap it all up. Another great guest, September 13, 2023, Tim Gray, the founder and CEO of World War II Foundation, and talking about the things they have going on. And just recently, they had an event with uh, Scott Gibson. And a lot of cool things going on down in Hawaii. They were a big part of that. And we had Tim on our website back in September. Um, we've got Jeff Daniels, Jim Nance from CBS Sports does a lot of our films, Gary Sinise. We've had Leah Schreiber, Darius Rucker, Luke Bryan. Um, so um, we, we do these films, but, but the thing that makes them a little different is that we shoot them all on location. So if we're going to do a film on Guadalcanal, we go to Guadalcanal. If we're going to do a film on Auschwitz, we go to Auschwitz. If we're going to do one on Peleliu, we go to Peleliu. Iwo Jima, same thing. So every film that we shoot, we shoot on location uh, in Europe or the Pacific, where the story played out. And, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I know you guys delve into the Pacific a lot, but when you go back there, you know, this year we were on Guam, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and just the remnants of the battles that went on there. And, and to see those, um, you know, still there. Um, Peleliu is considered um, the most well-preserved battlefield in the world because it's illegal to take anything off the island. So, you know, there were 500 caves on Peleliu that the Japanese had. So you go into those caves and there are samurai swords, there are radios, there are Coke bottles, there are helmets, there are guns, there are all these things. It's like the battle, you know, ended in the fall of 1944 and everybody just dropped everything and it's all still there. One of the things I've been wanting to do, I never get around to, just because of how quickly we record these things live and and all that. But there's such a lot of times there's very cool conversations we have with the guests before we go on live, and sometimes I need to record those and then put those up on Patreon. <laughs> One of the things that was cool about Tim Gray that separates him from most of our guests, most of our guests were heavy into World War II, and so. Usually they got World War II stuff hanging up in the background, like Jeff and I have radios in the canteens. Tim had his logo, but then he had all 1980s stuff. <laughs> He's so fascinated with when he grew up in the 80s. He had an old 1982 like um, Macintosh computer behind him. He had the old uh, radio that once used to be referred to as a ghetto blaster, but I don't think you know. I think we have to use a different phrase for that nowadays. But he had that old radio back there and. Before we went live, we were just talking about his love for his childhood and all things 80s and how most of us were out looking for World War II stuff, but he's he's trying to track down all the 80s stuff. And so it was very cool to, before we went live, talking about all the 80s stuff and him showing off all his 80s stuff, just like Jeff and I show off all our 1940s stuff on the show. And so there's a lot of cool conversations we have that you guys never hear that I need to record and then after the show say, hey, you mind if I 
do something with that and and maybe offer that up as a little extra bonus for those of you on Patreon. Yeah, that'd be a good idea because how often we just kind of the guest comes on and we're just hacking away and then you know Don just cuts us off like all right, all right let's save it for the show let's get going you know because <laughs> if we do we get into some good stuff and and man I mean Tim Gray dude we had Tim Gray on what's the scuttlebutt I mean that was just huge and, and it just impressed me you could just hear in his voice there he's just such a nice easygoing likable guy and and to, the the for to look at what he has done and accomplished and what he's still doing for him to take the time you know and hang out with us for an hour and to be so complimentary of it and he just you could tell he just had a just a lot of fun just three guys you know and 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 we talk about it a lot what's the scuttlebutt you know i i tell folks that are kind of nervous you know with their first time coming on i'm like look the best way i can describe it it's like three of us hanging around a campfire at a living history event just talking about our love for world war ii and tim just really fell into that you know immediately once the once the episode started so uh, that's definitely one that that if I go back to like the top three guests that we've had thus far, you know, if you want like an elevator speech for why people should listen to what's the scuttlebutt, it, Tim Gray's name's going to come up for me for sure. October twenty fifth, not too long ago, um, it was uh, one of those episodes where I was able to kind of we left the World War Two era. And I was able to scratch an itch that I had recently developed, which was interest in. And I give credit to Jeff because he's mentioned on so many episodes, hey, to truly understand World War II, you got to understand what happened pre-war. And you were focusing a lot on World War One. You're reading some Hemingway stuff. And one day at work, for whatever reason, I think, I think in my mind I was processing this new theory that we're living through the silent depression with with way inflation and our economy is going. And so I started just looking at photos of the Great Depression, and hence my hat and all that. And then I, one weekend I was bored, and I started watching. I'd seen this clip on TikTok. It was Chris Rock and the guy from American Psycho. I always forget his name. And they're in World War One uniforms. And they're talking, it's, Three African Americans in World War One uniforms, and the guy from American Psycho—I always forget his name—and he's in a World War One uniform, and they're talking about how the the NCOs were treating the African Americans like like shit and this and that, and how he's coming in, and I'm like, what movie is this? And it's a movie called Amsterdam. I did some research. It has the guy who played Snafu from the Pacific on it. Um, Chris Rock's got a short role in it. Got a bunch of people in it. Robert De Niro plays a general smedley butler type character and kind of like um not to the extreme of but kind of in the way of inglorious bastards it's historical fiction but not that extreme they basically took three make-believe characters margot robbie's in it as well and they put them right smack dab in the middle of the business plan now for those you're not familiar with the business plan which is why i had this next guest on Mr. Colin Heaton we were talking about the bonus army during we talked well, we kind of laid the groundwork we talked about the great depression how the, the run on the banks um stock market crash how that led to the march of the bonus army which led to Smedley Butler and an active plot to overthrow the government to take FDR out and bring in 
a third party. And so I reached out to Colin, and here's a clip from episode 166. Obviously, that's a lot to cover, but here's a quick synopsis of us just talking about the bonus army, and then I got a little information for Jeff that he might get excited about. And and even though the, the actress passed a decade before, uh, in July of, of 32, it was revisited by the House of Representatives. And again, you know, it was like shut down. Well, that word spread like the measles because mm-hmm. that's when guys came from every corner of, of, of the country as fast as they could. By the end of the second week of July, I mean, the estimates say seventeen to 25,000 people were in the area surrounding D.C. A lot of these people were on private property owned by a guy who said, hey, you can camp here. It's not on federal property. It's private property. They can't do anything to Across you. Across the river. Across the river. The Anacostia. And, uh, but it didn't matter because the government was going to, the government could not have 17 to 25,000 people. A lot of them were civilians. A lot of them were, were, were family members. Uh, but they could not have that many people publicly demonstrating against the federal government uh, in such an open way because that really makes you look stupid if you're the Fed and you haven't resolved an issue. And Colin so, just pointed out something very important. Um, this is the Depression. As I said, people are losing their houses. People are losing their farms. So it wasn't just the vets. It was their wife, his wife, their kids, because they had nowhere to go. So they're all right. heading east. It, now they're making a great migration east, starting from California. Everybody just started getting in this long march, hopping in old jalopies on donkeys, wagons, whatever form of transportation, the Heel Toe Express. And they set up these Hoovervilles all through Washington. And what we're talking about is the World War I vets, they were promised through a bill to get a bonus pay issued to them, the price differed based on the amount of entries they acquired, but the bill wasn't guaranteed to be fulfilled until like 1943. And this is 1933. Great Depression. People are starving. And so all these vets marched to D.C. saying, hey, how about you just go ahead and give us some money now? And so as you heard them, 70,000 World War I troops plus their families protesting in Washington wanting their money, and it turned into a riot. Patton, MacArthur, the whole nine out there, tanks, tear gas, complete nightmare. Go listen to EP-166. Now, Jeff, I will reach out to Mr. Colin Heaton after Masters of the Air comes on, because when I was doing my show prep for that, and he and I discussed it a little bit off the air, he was one of the historical references used by the production crew of Masters of the Air. So he provided some military historian um, advice and guidelines. Um, uh, why am I going blank on that title? The same role you played for Walking Point. Um, he did military advisory for sections of Masters of the Air, so who knows, maybe after it comes out and a little time pass, maybe he can uh, put us in touch with some people who possibly get us in touch with some other people. Maybe we can make some things happen. So. Once again, relationships that we form unintentionally by this show. Who knows? Yeah. And that's going to wrap it up for the clips of the some of the more favorable or memorable episodes of 2023. Plenty more to come in 2024. I'm still reading the Pacific Alamo or Alamo of the Pacific. Jeff, are you still? What are you currently reading? So I recently just finished uh, Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose, which I, you know, you can go back a couple episodes and where I talk about that. But I was very excited 
uh, once I finished that, I knew exactly what I was going to be reading because I do have a break in my uh, in the semester for my college. So I got a couple weeks where I don't have to be reading something that's not very fun. Uh, <laughs> so I am now five chapters already in the John Luckadoo's uh, book, Damn Lucky. Uh, this is the story. Uh, so John Luckadoo was a uh, B-17 pilot with the bloody 100th. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if his name at least came up during Masters of the Air. Uh, I don't know if it will or not, but he certainly knew uh, the other pilots that that uh, revolved around. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough, well, a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, when I was up in Dallas. Yeah, it was uh, Veterans Day weekend. Uh, I did not know he was going to be there. I just got that information like last minute. And, uh, of course, I was in my, you know, my air corps uniform and my a2 and my crusher and may west and everything and they said oh you need to go talk to to to, to john luckadoo i said john luckadoo is here are you kidding so it was really cool to to hang out with him and i don't know if we can see it or not but um when he signed this book uh we were actually talking about of all things we were talking about iraq um and we had some very similar uh i guess emotions uh at about the same age when he was flying his 25 missions and when i was doing my thing over there and um it was just kind of a really neat moment uh to to be able to just kind of get on his level and and he recognized it right away this is not just somebody in line that's going to pay 20 bucks sign my book okay thanks shake your hand nice to meet you and and move on so it was really really nice to just have that one-on-one with him for a few minutes and and get some pictures taken and to just the way he looked me in the eye when he shook my hand it was just kind of like he knew and i knew and we didn't have to say anything um but he was also really impressed with uh the fact that i had just seen him in a documentary that has not been released to the public yet um but and hopefully it will soon but it's a about an hour and a half long documentary about a uh potentially uh, a story that uh, myself and and Dennis Blocker and several others are trying to get to be made into a book, so people can learn about this other uh, B seventeen pilot. But they introduced John Luckadoo in the documentary as well. Not that he was in the same bomb group, uh, but he was flying about the same time, flew to some of the same targets, uh, and really could kind of give some insights. So it was. Really special. I'm already five chapters in. It's an incredible book. Uh, Kevin Maurer, number one New York Times bestselling author, has done uh, this one here again called Damn Lucky, the story of John Luckadoo of the 100th Bomb Group. You know, it's interesting. I was watching a video on YouTube. It was, I um, can't remember who produced it, but they, they're over in the United Kingdom, and they had three relatively modern-day veterans on. Iraq War, Gulf War, and the newer combat. And then they actually still had a um, World War II veteran there who fought, you know, over in the United Kingdom during the war. And as you were just saying, despite the fact that your wars are 65, 75 years apart, 55 years apart, depending on when people serve, they basically all had the same insights. They felt the same thing, even though they had different conflicts. They experienced different things, but the similarity 
and just combat in and of itself, even though they served in different branches and in different forms, they all basically shared the same experience and had the same outlook and thoughts on things. And it's, and it's very interesting to see, you know, the, the 90 year old sit next to the 30 year old sit next to the 40 year old. And, and then they had one gentleman there who got shot through the neck. So he's completely paralyzed. I mean, he's got the breathing apparatus on controls the wheelchair and just how they all just basically experienced or even post-war the same sort of torment and just the whole repatriating and back into civilization. It was very interesting to see over the swath of generations how just that commonality, it doesn't matter. You all experienced the same thing. Yeah. And I'm sure when it came to you standing in line, he looked at you and saw your uniform squared away and you just weren't some schmo who got some fake bomber jacket off of Amazon and put on some dickies and like, hey, guy, how are you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm sure the fact that your, your uniform was squared away is like, yeah, this guy knows what he's, he's you know, talking about. Yeah, it was, it was what a special treat. It was very enjoyable for sure. And speaking of special treats, we hope each and every one of you all enjoyed this special treat of the holiday Christmas edition of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We're very excited to see what comes along in 2024, and we're excited to have each and every one of you come along for the ride. Do us a huge favor. Share our podcast with like-minded friends. Post us on Facebook, Instagram. Share our YouTube videos. And um, you can follow us. Just head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can click on the social media links, and you can find all our links to Instagram, TikToks, and YouTube, and all that good stuff. Thank you guys so very, very much. And we're going to be off next week for the holidays, but we'll be back in 2024. And uh, for myself and Jeff Copsetta and everyone else, thank you very much. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 